Well, we are uh, officially halfway through the Gospel of Mark, and I think at a really critical inflection point in the Gospel, uh, one that merits uh, a little overlap with things we've looked at before. Um, I was talking to someone after the first service, and they said, you know, repetition's a good thing. And, uh, you know, they said, in fact, we're getting to the age where we need it more than ever. And I said, well, I'm in the same boat. Um, but we're, so we're going back over some things that have gone before to really get our bearings uh, at this, I think, critical point in the gospel to understand where we're headed. Uh, in fact, you know, just to give a kind of a 30,000-foot view of the gospel of Mark, if you were to outline this gospel, uh, I think you can do it in a very straightforward way under two headings. Uh, the first part of the gospel, these first eight chapters, really fall under the heading of a question. And the question is this, who is Jesus? It's a critical question. That's the question over the first eight chapters. Who is Jesus? That's the through line. And the second half, which we're about to get into uh, at the end of this chapter, falls under the heading of an assertion. Not a question, but an assertion. And that assertion is, Jesus is king. And critical, I think, to both the question and the assertion is this issue of perception. How do, you, how, do you, how do you perceive these things? How do you perceive Jesus? How do you view him? And, and in light of who Jesus is, how do, you, how do you perceive yourself? How do you perceive the world you live in? So, you know, again, I called a bit of an audible this week to go back over several of the passages in order to, to see how they tie together at this critical point in the gospel, and on this particular point, a perception um, of understanding how to see. Now, a while back, I came across an article in, the, in Atlantic Magazine with a title that really uh, caught my attention, and it was this. Virtual reality reminds users what it's like to be themselves. Virtual reality reminds users what it's like to be themselves. Now, here, you know, I was thinking all along that virtual reality was about escaping myself. Uh, but the author of the piece, this guy named Michael Clune, makes the exact opposite argument. And he, he says this, he says, the idea behind virtual reality is to show you the world through someone else's eyes. You become an astronaut, you become a refugee. But he goes on to say, this is a mistake. The technology can't show you what it's like to inhabit another body. Its true function is to remind you how strange it is to inhabit your own. Now, what he's tapping into there, I think, is quite profound. Uh, he is saying that in order to truly see, in order to have true perspective on who you are, you must step into, you must see the world through another set of eyes. You must take on another perspective. Of course, that would imply that our natural and native outlook, our natural perspective is an, at minimum flawed. You'd have to at least acknowledge that. Um, maybe it's distorted, perhaps even uh, blinded in important respects. So these first 26 verses of Mark 8, you know, comprise these four little vignettes that I just read through, which taken together really make that point that we don't see as clearly as we ought to. And if, and if we want to see clearly, as, as we should, we need to take on the vision of another. We need to see through the eyes of Jesus. We need to see uh, how he sees, and we need to see ourselves as he sees us. So along those lines, I want to look at really three, three things in, in this passage. First is a blindness to brokenness. 
Secondly, a blindness to blindness. And finally, uh, blindness broken by belief. Blindness to brokenness, blindness to blindness, and then blindness broken by or healed by belief. Now, it's, it's a rare enough thing for Hollywood to put out a good movie. It's a rare thing still to put out a good sequel. And, you know, our passage this morning opens with what looks for all the world to be something like a sequel. Uh, not the feeding of the 5,000. We saw that a couple of chapters ago. But the feeding of the 4,000. Um, and, and you wouldn't be blamed for wondering why we need, you know, another one of these stories in the Bible because they're so similar. Both take place in the wilderness. Both involve this sort of back and forth between Jesus and the disciples about how we're going to feed everybody. Uh, both uh, have Jesus asking how much food have we actually got on hand. Both uh, have the disciples thinking there's no way this is going to happen. And, and in both instances, Jesus, is, Jesus blesses what they've scrapped to, scraped together, distributes it to the crowd so that everyone eats until they're full and there's leftovers. So, you know, it looks for all the world like there's the only difference is in the numbers. You know, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. Uh, the number of baskets, loaves, leftovers, you know, and so that the feeding of the 4,000 looks like a sequel and not a very good one. But when you look closer, you know, really important differences emerge. Uh, and, and it makes sense, I think, of, of how important those differences are. You've got to look at what's sandwiched between them, between those two stories, in the story of the Syrophoenician woman um, in chapter 7. This is, of course, a Gentile woman. She is from the area uh, modern, she's Libyan. She's from Libya. Um, and she comes to Jesus saying, my daughter is afflicted with an evil spirit. Would you help her? And Jesus responds to this request with, I think, one of the more challenging verses in the Bible where it basically looks like he's insulting her. And he, he says this, let the children be fed first for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, we saw a couple of weeks ago that, in fact, it's not an insult, but Jesus is instructing. It's not an insult, it's instruction. You might even say that that answer is something like a parable, a pithy little one-sentence parable, which has at its center not kids and dogs, but a table, a table so lavish that not only are children fed at it, but dogs are fed from it. Everybody's fed, children and animals. And, and as you see the woman sort of take in Jesus' answer, you realize this woman is sharp. She is tracking with Jesus. She's not offended. Uh, she locks right in and sees that what he's saying, in fact, is that she's got, there's something on offer for her. She sees that, there are, that, that there, there's food for people like her, that God's grace is lavish. It's available not just to the, the religious insiders, but to people like her who are very far away, who you wouldn't expect to be fed. And that idea, at the center of Jesus' answer to that woman, uh, both encapsulates what's going on with the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, but it also explains it, explains what God is doing uh, in distributing grace, that he gives it not just to his people, but to his covenant people, but to the nations, to all kinds of people. The feeding of the 5,000, of course, happens in Judea, among the Jews, the children of the parable, who, who have a seat at God's table as his covenant people. But the feeding of the 4,000 happens in Tyre, among people who didn't, who never thought they had a seat at the table. And yet, guess what? They're feasting too. There's leftovers for them too. 
And taken together, again, it shows that what's at the center is God's lavish table of grace. The same grace available to all kinds of people. Another difference that emerges between those two accounts, and maybe the most important, or among the most important, is who's able to recognize the crisis. Uh, in Judea, the disciples, you know, when they were with their people, they were deeply sensitive, deeply sensitive to their needs. And then when they're entire among Gentiles, that sensitivity seems to have disappeared. In Judea, all their alarms go off. Uh, when they were with the crowd for just an afternoon, but here they've been with these Gentiles in Tyre for three days with nothing to eat, and there's not a word to Jesus about how to care for them or feed them. In Judea, they beg for help for their own. In Tyre, they are blind to the needs of others, to the outsiders. Highly sensitive to the needs of their own people, numb to the needs of outsiders. It's quite a, quite a contrast. In fact, in verse 4, you know, it implies that they're kind of thinking, well, it's a pity there's no stores where they could just go and buy some food for themselves. Isn't that a shame? But as great a contrast as their concern is for these different kinds of people, I think the most striking thing is what these stories share in common, and what they share in common is the compassion of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. The disciples are blind to the brokenness and the need, but Jesus is deeply sensitive to it. And you see the sensitivity come out uh, as he's described as being really worried if they're sent home and some of them might faint on the way. Uh, he's aware of how far they've come. And I, and I take that, you know, in the fullest sense of, 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 of how far they've come to get to Jesus, not just geographically, but also culturally, religiously. You see, Jesus sees people in, a, in ways in which uh, his own people are blind. And, and it, it, it actually is that. It's not just cluelessness. It's blindness. And, and you have to see that because they've already seen Jesus do this before. They've witnessed his power to provide food for huge crowds of people with food to spare. They personally passed that food out. They personally ate that food. They personally gathered up the leftovers. Jesus is asking them to remember that all here, right? And so you kind of wonder in that second situation, why, they don't just, why the disciples don't go, Jesus, could you just do it again? Do it again. And yet they can't apprehend, they can't get their heads around how Jesus might provide for outsiders in the same way that he provides for insiders. Because while it might seem good and right that God would provide for the right kind of people, at least from their perspective, uh, you know, with the right cultural credibility, the right religious background, we're just not so sure about these Gentiles. The disciples are blind, blind to the brokenness, blind to the need, blind to the possibility that these people too might have a place at the table. Blind to the fact, in, you know, blind to their own situation that in fact no one's earned their way to this table and yet everyone's fed from it. Now, you know, we might not carry around, um, you know, as intense a deep generational ethnic entrenched prejudice uh, towards outsiders as, as the disciples did. Or, you know, maybe we do. That's possible. Uh, and yet, you know, I think it's possible for, for you, and you know, I'll just speak for myself and my own little crooked heart, um, to carry around this little unspoken conviction, you know, that I'm going to admit to you now, that, that I just think kind of flickers there. You know, that God's grace really works best really works best with people he can work with. You know, like, like yeah, maybe, you're, maybe they're not a Christian. Maybe they're not, you know, in my immediate kind of, 
you know, sphere of religiosity, but they, you know, they shared basic same morality. They, they basically, you know, it seems that their life is pretty together. They, you know, their politics are a lot like mine. They're, you know, they're, uh, they come from the right part of the country. Uh, they educate their kids in the same way I do. They like the same stuff. You know, they, these are the people we can work with. God can work with these kind of people, right? He worked with me, you know, and then he'll work with them. But, you know, but we don't see clearly. We've got blind spots. And here, here's the tricky thing about blind spots. You're blind to them. You have blind spots, and you don't see them. I have blind spots, and I don't see them. And those blind spots emerge powerfully among the disciples who are with Jesus in nearly the exact situation as they were before, but they're seeing people differently, and they don't see them as Jesus does. They seem to feel they're among a people that God just can't work with. So they lock right back into the same uncertainties as they were locked into before about where the food's going to come from, what it's going to cost, where, where can we get it? They're blind to the brokenness, they're blind to their own blindness, and critically, blind to the grace and power of Jesus, which they've just seen. So what does Jesus do? Here's grace for you. He does it again. He does it all over again. He shows them there's food at God's table for insiders and outsiders with plenty left over. And this connects, actually, to the next little vignette where Jesus and his disciples head to Dalmanutha, where they're met with this sort of ad hoc a committee of Pharisees that's come to him with a singular demand. Uh, and the text says that, you know, it was to test him. Um, and, and the demand is that he would provide for them a sign from heaven. And, and before we get an answer from Jesus, we get an insight into Jesus. Uh, we're told about his emotions of this request. Uh, he is grieved by it, uh, probably tempered with some amount of anger, uh, Mark says that this request provoked a deep sigh in his spirit. And when Jesus does answer, his answer is comprised of something like an oath. Uh, and, and the first half of that oath is, it kind of could literally be rendered something like this. Should a sign be given to this generation? It, it's a little bit like, so help me. You know, and then, and then what comes? You know, it's like, should a sign be given to this generation and so help me? May the Lord strike me dead, you know, or, or may I be cursed forever. It's, it's, it's that kind of a phrase. In other words, it's more than just a no. It is a definitive no. Ain't no way you're getting a sign from me. And still, I've got to admit, I look at this text, and it's, kind of, it's exactly what I want Jesus to do. <laughs> Jesus, would you give him a sign? Would you show him what's up? And, and, you know, God often gives signs. There's nothing inherently wrong with signs. We've actually seen this in the gospel. But, but there will be no sign now for this simple reason. It is, it is because they are coming with a request for a sign, not uh, that the truth of Jesus would be confirmed, but that they would be confirmed in themselves. Not so that they would be able to please Jesus, but so that Jesus would meet their demands. They, they, they don't ask for a sign from God. They ask for a sign from heaven. And that's actually, that phrase is something different altogether. To, to ask for a sign from God would be like, you know, asking for ratification of a truth, some kind of proof that in Jesus' person, that in what he does, you know, we would be, we would, we would be made sure that Jesus' ministry is, in fact, in line with God's word, that it's valid. That's asking for a sign from God. But they decided long ago it's not valid. 
At the beginning of chapter 3, when, when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, uh, Mark says they began to plot his death. So they're showing up insisting that, actually, Jesus, you need to prove yourself to me. You need to get on board with my program. You need to align to my expectations because I've got some ideas for what my Messiah needs to do. And it is not reveal yourself to us, it is prove yourself to us. And, and that really makes all the difference in the world. They're not asking for ratification that he is indeed the Messiah. Asking for a sign from heaven is asking for retribution uh, to fall from heaven on our enemies. It's really what that is. Uh, uh, you know, take care of this Roman occupation. Take care of these dirty Gentiles who are corrupting all our morals. Asking for a sign from God is like asking Jesus for some ID, but asking for a sign from heaven is like calling in a drone strike. Do something about the Romans. Do something about the Gentiles. All of this speaks to the fact that they have a singular way of seeing Jesus, of seeing what they feel a good Messiah ought to be doing. And that Messiah needs to come for vengeance on the outsiders and vindication for the insiders. And they're blind to seeing him in any other way. So in language that summons up the Exodus, he, he tells them, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, that's kind of a loaded phrase. He calls them a generation. Um, and, and, and in using that, he's saying, you know, you're, you're just like the old Israelites, that, that famously unfaithful Exodus generation that day by day saw great signs of God's provision and power and grace day in, day out, and setting you free from slavery and feeding you and leading you. But they didn't see it. They didn't see grace in it. All they could see was how God is not living up to my expectations. Uh, you're not feeding us in the way we would like to be fed. You're not leading us in the way we would like to be led. You are not providing the comfort and the life I wanted. You're not giving me my best life now. They were full of complaints, stuck in their stubbornness, always supposing they had a better plan for salvation than the one that God had actually provided for them. They're not seeing. So Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you know, you're just like that. Here I am right in front of you. I mean, you started to plot my death when I healed a man on the Sabbath. Uh, signs of God's salvation all around you, but you're blind. You're blind to the brokenness. You're blind to the blindness, blind to the grace of God. And, and, and you're not getting a sign from me uh, to confirm the kind of Messiah you want. No sign's going to be given to you because it's all playing out in front of you. It's a situation Jesus describes really vividly in John, John 9, where he says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now, that you say we, but now that you say we see, our guilt remains. In other words, Jesus is saying, you know, actual blindness, not seeing Jesus for who he is, not yet anyway, that doesn't, that doesn't you know, condemn you. But the insistence that I actually do see perfectly clearly that I've got perfect vision, that there's nothing warped or blurry or blinded in my perspective, that's what gets you. That you've already decided ahead of time. The way to see the grace of Jesus begins with the admission that I am prone to seeing things all wrong. And I'm open to seeing things in a new way. That, that I've got blind spots. That I need to be informed of those blind spots by someone from the outside. Uh, that my insistence that I see clearly is in fact the thing that blinds me. 
um, that I need new eyes. I need a new vision for life and godliness through the eyes of Jesus. Now, the last time the disciples were in a boat, they set off without Jesus, and, and they ended up seeing him coming to him, uh, walking on the water, and they were terrified. And the interesting thing about that little account is Mark says they weren't terrified by seeing Jesus walking on the water so much, but they were terrified, interestingly, by what they had failed to see. Um, they are fearful, uh, Mark explains, because they lacked understanding because they had not understood about the loaves uh, and their hearts were hardened. Uh, they had just left the feeding of the 5,000. They hadn't understood about the loaves. They hadn't understood grace. They hadn't seen that Jesus had provided lavishly for them. And now here they are back in the boat and they're bickering. Uh, they're bickering about not having enough bread for the trip. Uh, having no bread. And, and this elicits a rebuke from Jesus. He tells them, in essence, that their problem isn't a lack of provisions, but again, a lack of perception. Uh, they've got dull understanding, he says. You've got hard hearts, blind eyes, dull hearing. And, and yet, he doesn't just rebuke their unfaithfulness. He goes on to recount his own faithfulness. Uh, he urges them to remember how he broke loaves and fed 5,000. Now he broke seven loaves and fed 4,000. And critically, he, you know, if they remember how much was left over, he's really fixed on the leftovers thing. Because why? Because he wants them to see the lavishness of his grace. He wants them to remember being in a situation where it looked like everything was lacking and it was a crisis as being the very same situation in which God provided beyond all expectations, lavishly with lots left over. He wants to get them recalling how focused they were on their lack of resources so that they'll remember how God lavishly provided resources. He wants them, in other words, to see, see things differently than they're seeing them now, differently from how they saw them then and how they're seeing them in this particular situation, and seeing their own experience of insufficiency, in fact, as the prime condition to experience the utter sufficiency of God and His grace. Now, I haven't mentioned it yet, but the fight in the boat had to do with forgetting, you know, to bring bread on the trip. Um, I, I've got four kids. Uh, we've done lots of minivan road trips. I've got a car top carrier. Managed to avoid the trailer hitch, you know, but we would pack that thing, and I can't tell you how many things we'd get in the car. It would be 100 miles down the road, and it would be like, hey, did you remember to bring the goldfish crackers or whatever? And they're like, oh, I totally forgot, you know? And it's like, what are we doing here? Um, and there's something like that here. Here they had baskets and baskets of leftovers. They get in the boat for this trip, and they've got no food. And yet, Mark says, you know, they had one loaf with them in the boat. And it's a little bit confusing because they're actually fighting about having no bread in the boat. But then Mark says there was bread in the boat. And it, it you know, it gets you asking the question, is there a loaf in the, you know, in the boat that they don't know about? Uh, you know, did they think of having one loaf as basically the equivalent of having nothing? And here's what I think Mark is actually saying. This is the New Revised Standridge version of, you know, what's going on in the Bible. Um, I, think, I think Mark is saying the loaf is Jesus. He's in the boat with you. He's everything you need. He, he is, in fact, you know, the one who refers to himself in exactly those terms as the bread of life, as, as all you need. You know, so even though they can't see it and they fight about not having what they need, Jesus is in the boat and he is pressing upon them, you've got everything you need. 
And he provides what they need in that moment, uh, you know, with, with a warning. He warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven in the Bible is very often symbolic of a kind of infectious corruption. Um, you know, uh, in the same way that yeast works in a loaf of bread, it pervades everything. It touches everything. And he connects this leaven with both the Pharisees and with Herod. In other words, he connects it with the religious ruling class uh, and the political ruling class, with the priests and the politicians. And, and it's curious because, you know, no one ever made that connection. These were, you know, the Bloods and the Crips. These were the Republicans and the Democrats, you know. These were the, the, the Jets and the Sharks. Um, you know, you would never link them together and say they're both basically about the same thing, but Jesus links them together here. And it's, it, it would have shocked you know, Herod and the Pharisees to hear that, it sure, certainly would have shocked the disciples as well, because, you know, what does a religious sect of Jewish leaders have in common with, you know, a, a ruling class that are famously rejectors of God's law and famous in favor of upholding the Roman occupation? What do they have to do with each other? But Jesus links them, and he says, you know, both of them will do, cor corrupt you in the same way. And, 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 he, and he is basically saying this, they both reject him. They both reject Jesus, not for the same reasons, but ultimately they reject him. And they will both not only say, you know, don't follow Jesus, but they will actually commend to you a life uh, that can be, that can thrive apart from Jesus. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians is in essence reliance upon oneself, whether that is expressed in terms of religious rigor or political power. Anything but reliance on the grace of God. So you have in one bucket both the religious and the rebellious, the priests and the politicians, the church people and the non-church people, despite all outward appearances, are not so far as, you as we might suppose because they are all afflicted with a flawed perception of Jesus. Herod and his own people, Herod and his people failed to believe when they heard of Jesus' mighty works because they were confident in their own power and confident in their own resources and realized, you know, realized through power and position. And, and the religious leaders failed to believe in Jesus and they were confident in their own power and re power and resources and realized through, you know, realized through religious rigor and position that they could make it on their own. And both of those things are, are expressions of self-salvation. At the end of the day, this is, this is what makes my life make sense. This is what moves it forward. This is the most important thing. And they've got no use for Jesus. They only have use for God insofar as he will get on board with their program. And, and you know, we still do this. Just a couple of days ago, a friend of mine posted a picture on Facebook. And it was a picture of a cross, the symbol of our faith, uh, which happened to have painted on it uh, kind of the symbolism of, of a well-known, you know, American social political movement that we would all recognize. And she included with that picture this caption, Christianity getting it right. Um, in other words, Christianity gets it right when it gets on board with what I feel is right, uh, when it gets on board with my agenda, when it does what I want it to do, when it takes, when it takes onto itself the symbols and the agenda that I feel is most central to life. And that's the leaven that Jesus warns us about. 
rejecting the true Savior in the favor of the one I've made for myself. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I realize we're all coming from different places, but here's the, here's the, here's the truth. We're all religious. We all worship. We all have that painted cross that we say, this is what gets it right. Now, Jesus never warns people unless they're in danger. And even those closest to him are in some danger. And, and the warning signs emerge, you know, in this experience when, where the amazement of the disciples doesn't come after the miracles, but before it, when they're stunned by the fact that Jesus would even try to feed so many people with the meager resources they had. And, and where there's a lack of wonder among them, even as they go around and collect the leftovers of this abundant provision Jesus has just given. And again, it's like this amazing outpouring of grace has occurred right in front of them, and they can't see it. Like, like something is at work, but they're wondering, how, how is this supposed to work for me? But Jesus hangs in there with them. This is really critical. He asks this question, do you still not understand? And I actually love this question. And here's what I love about it. I love that word still, because it shows that we are, you know, um, we have a tougher time understanding than maybe we'd like to admit, but he, that we can be very stubborn in our unbelief, but Jesus is more stubborn still. I'm so grateful for that about Jesus, for his stubbornness, his tenacity, his hanging in there. And the struggle, and this struggle with seeing clearly, I think is, is really encapsulated in this last little vignette where this blind man is brought to Jesus for healing. Jesus takes this man aside in this very tactile way. Uh, he, 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 he heals him. He spits on his eyes. Uh, he lays his hands on him. Um, but, but then he does something we haven't seen yet in this gospel. He inquires if the healing is really taken. Uh, he, he, he asks him, are you able to see clearly yet? And, and, and in fact, the man says no. He, it hasn't completely taken it's not that he doesn't see, but, but he doesn't see clearly. He sees, he, sort of. He sees, but he doesn't see. He tells people, you know, he, he tells Jesus that people look like walking trees. So Jesus persists and repeats the whole procedure. And, and we're told that three things then happen. That, that Jesus opens his eyes, restores his sight, and that the man sees clearly. And that really concludes the first section of Mark. That's the punctuating event in this whole journey we've been on up to this point with the question pervading through it, the question of who is Jesus? And, and that section leaves us with a question, and, and it's a, I think it's the same question that Jesus puts to the man, which at first looks, nothing, look, looks like nothing more than kind of the standard question even a doctor would ask who's been involved in trying to heal blindness, but I think it's the most important question in all of life, and it's this. Do you see anything? Can you or will you see Jesus for who he is? Now, you know, I've, I've recently, you know, I've been on, on a vacation, and I've, I've been on airplanes for the first time since the pandemic. And, you know, my, my particular profession, if you sit on an airplane with somebody and they ask you what you do and you tell them you're a pastor, two, one of two things happens. It's either like saying I sell insurance or I work for the IRS and then it's straight into Sky Mall, or people open up. And generally speaking, when they open up, uh, very often, not always, but often, it is, you know, the litany of the problems with the faith that I represent. 
because there's no shortage of scandals and scoundrels and all kinds of problems, you know? And, um, and generally, that's a good conversation because I agree with a whole lot of it. I'm troubled by the same stuff. But here's the question I always want to, if I have the opportunity, to ask people, will you look at Jesus? I understand all the troubles. I get it. Will you look at Jesus? I used to ride the bus every week with a guy in Boston every day. And he would always come to me with that. And I finally said to him, I said, you're like the guy who reads Moby Dick but doesn't want to pay attention to the whale. It's a whale story. The Bible's a Jesus story. Will you look at Jesus? Will you see? Do you see anything there? Do you know that he has come? Do you understand why he has come? Do you understand the gospel? Have you heard it? Will you believe? And here's the thing. He is stubborn. He can handle your skepticism. He can handle your blindness and your brokenness and your resistance. He can handle your hatred of him. It's possible that right now everything seems cloudy and looks like nothing but a bunch of walking trees. And, and that's okay. That's okay because Jesus spits on your eyes and he grabs a hold of you and he persists and he's here and he's at work and he pursues and he puts his hands on you and he heals you. And, and if you're in that place this morning, you know, please know he's here. He's, he's made that promise. I've been in ministry a long time, and I, I can attest to how present he is. He is gracious to give us vision, eyes to see. He's gracious to show us the truth that apart from him, we're blinded by our own blindness, blind to the brokenness. And he's gracious to show us that he can actually give us eyes to see. Can you still not see Jesus is gracious, faithful, and stubborn to give you eyes to see and see clearly. And our presence here is an indication, I think, of that tenacious grace. We're here for a reason. You know, maybe you've been dragged here this morning. I used to get dragged to the church all the time when I was a kid. You know, but that's a good thing. God used that. You know, can, you know, know his tenacity. And this, this, this table is a really vivid picture of that. It's certainly a picture of his provision. It is also a picture of his pursuit. Uh, that he is tenacious uh, in pursuing his beloved people and giving them everything they need for life and godliness, the most essential things that we would live and thrive and grow in him. So let's pray as we prepare to go there. Uh, Jesus, thank you for your persistence, for your stubbornness, for your love. And thank you that um, as we are about to experience in coming to this table, that unlike conventional religion, uh, you do not stand apart, arms folded, toes tapping, uh, waiting for us to um, meet your demands, to become pleasing to you. The gospel speaks a better and utterly different word that instead you recognize that we can't do that. We never could. And so you stepped into our place and took the punishment that we deserved for all of our sins and crimes. Lord, in our hearts, outwardly, inwardly, you bore that for us. And not only that, but you have conferred upon us your perfect record of righteousness so that we can say that we're not just your followers. We can say, as you urge us to, we're your sons and daughters. 
We're in the family. We, we have a seat at the table, at your lavish table of grace, and we're going there now. And as we do, Lord, I pray that we would um, know that you are here. Um, Lord, that we would uh, not just go through this as a ritual, um, but that we would instead um, take this as, a, as, as present grace, that we would be mindful that even as we need food and drink to live and thrive, um, Lord, how much more do we need Jesus that we might live and thrive in this life and in the life to come? And also, Lord, would we take it as a foretaste, as an appetizer for the day when we will sit at your table uh, where sin will be no more, where all the sad things come untrue, where all the broken things are no more, where every tear will be dried, where we will feast with our Savior. Um, in your presence. Lord, we look forward to that. May it come swiftly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.